Last Sunday, <clears throat> we began our examination of Leviticus 23 and these seven feasts, these <clears throat> festivals, holy convocations. God specifically structured the entire calendar, the Jewish calendar, to revolve around seven feasts. The first three, Passover, Unleavened Bread, and First Fruits, all took place in the springtime following the barley harvest. The Feast of Pentecost came 50 days later after the wheat harvest, before the summer heats set in. And the final three festivals, <coughs> the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles all occurred in the fall, uh, coinciding with the grape and olive harvests. As we noted in our previous study, in addition to giving the people ample time to rest from their work, these seven holy convocations were basically sanctified parties designed really ultimately to accomplish three things. <clears throat> One, they were designed to commemorate a past work of God. So when you're looking at the feast, you should always consider, you know, what work of God in their past, their history, does this festival commemorate? Two, the, fe the feasts were designed to celebrate God's present involvement in their lives. That's why a lot of them followed very practical things like harvests. So in one aspect, they commemorate a past work. In another aspect, they celebrate a present work. But thirdly, these festivals were designed to anticipate a future work that God was going to do in the nation of Israel. The Hebrew word that we have, festival, can literally be translated as rehearsals. They were rehearsing things that were to come. Now, what makes Leviticus 23 so spectacular is God is not only explaining to Israel what He was planning to do in their future, but He's telling them when He's actually going to do it. Not just what, but when. You see, these seven feasts present for us a timeline of God's handling of the Jewish people through the person and the work, the ministry of Jesus. As the Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians 2, these seven feasts presented, quote, a shadow of things to come, but the body, the substance, the essence, is Christ Jesus. Now last Sunday, last week, we discovered how the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, these first three springtime festivals, all find their ultimate fulfillment and the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. This morning, if you're a note taker, we're going to see how the Feast of Pentecost was a precursor to the birth of the church, and how the final three fall festivals find their prophetic fulfillment and the rapture of the church, the Feast of Trumpets, a time known as Jacob's Trouble. We also call it a Great Tribulation, representative in the Day of Atonement, and this final gathering, of the Jews, the Feast of Tabernacles, pointed to Jesus' second coming at the end. Let's dive right into the text. Verse 15 of Leviticus 23. The Lord speaking to Moses, Moses then to relay to the people, you shall count for yourself from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, and so the timing here is a direct connection back to the Feast of First Fruits. seven Sabbaths, shall be completed. Count 50 days. Today, after the seventh Sabbath, then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. Now, it's not particularly 
uh, titled, specifically titled here in this passage, but the feast in reference, which was to take place seven weeks, seven Sabbaths from the Feast of First Fruits, or a grand total of 50 days, became known historically as either the Feast of Weeks, that makes sense, seven weeks, or the Feast of Pentecost, Penta, simply meaning 50. So both of the titles for the festivals find their names directly from the passage, though not specifically mentioned. And you should note that the timing of Pentecost was the day following seven Sabbaths. So again, we find ourselves, the beginning of this celebration, uh, being initiated on a Sunday morning. Now the fundamental purpose for this feast centered on another set of first fruits. Not the barley harvest, that was in the spring, but now a new grain harvest, harvest of wheat. Continuing verse 17, you shall bring from your dwellings two wave loaves of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be a fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits to the Lord. And you shall offer with the bread seven lambs of the first year without blemish, one young bull, two rams. They shall be as a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offerings, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. Then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats as a sin offering, two male lambs of the first year as a sacrifice of a peace offering. So we have all the offerings kind of included here within Pentecost. The priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priests. And you shall proclaim on the same day that it is a holy convocation for you. It's a celebration, a party. Don't do any work in it. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. When you reap the harvest of your land, don't wholly reap the corners of your field when you reap, nor shall you gather any gleanings from your harvest. <clears throat> you shall leave these things for the poor and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. And again, this last verse is really a repeating of the Lord's original instructions, kind of this welfare program, leaving behind uh, parts of the field for the poor, for the stranger. We find that uh, originally being mentioned in Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10. There's a reason it's repeated here within Pentecost, but we'll get to that in a minute. Now, for starters, <clears throat> the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, was one of the three mandated harvest festivals. Three mandated. Fifty days following first fruits, the barley harvest. Every single Hebrew male. Ultimately, it would be the families, but if the family couldn't come, at least the man had to now make the journey back to the tabernacle in celebration of yet another successful wheat harvest. Aside from Pentecost being this celebration of God's continued provision of grain, and keep in mind, grain is how they made bread, was a staple to their diet, to their society. But beyond the, the practical celebration of just thank you, Lord, for another wonderful harvest. You've been so faithful. We want to celebrate that. We want to recognize it. Aside from that, historically, the Hebrews viewed this particular feast as a time to commemorate their formation as a people, as a nation. So keep in mind, multiple things happening with each feast. We're celebrating something God is doing right now. 
a wonderful harvest. We're going to gather. We're going to give the Lord our first fruits of the wheat. This is a wonderful time. Lord, you've been so faithful. They're singing and they're praising and they're partying. They're having a celebration, something God's doing right now. But then also they're looking back and they're commemorating here their formation as, as a nation. In a lot of ways, you could think about the Feast of Pentecost as a Jewish version of our Fourth of July. The fireworks, the celebrations, very patriotic. Well, God had freed them from bondage on Passover, the first feast, and then cleansed them of Egypt, the world, their sin, and unleavened bread, the second feast, making them, the third feast, the first fruits of his people. It was then 50 days later, after their liberation, that God would give them the law from Mount Sinai, birthing Israel, taking a ragtag group of slaves, just being freed, giving them the law, their constitution, their founding documents, making them a people. And this took place 50 days on Pentecost. Now what makes this feast so interesting? is that 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, again, he's the first fruits of the resurrection, the fulfillment of first fruits is in Jesus' resurrection, 40 days after that, right before Jesus ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives, gathered with the 120-some-odd disciples, he gives them an interesting instruction following a great commission. So Jesus says, go into the world with the gospel, <laughs> but before you go anywhere, go back to Jerusalem, just wait. You just need to hang out. I've got this great plan. You're going to go into the world. I'm going to use you. This is going to be an awesome thing. But you're not ready. In fact, you need to go to Jerusalem and wait specifically. Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2. Wait for the Holy Spirit. So this instruction to go back to Jerusalem took place on the 40th day following the resurrection. But then we're told very specifically, Acts chapter 2. That 10 days later, which you do math, 40 and 10, 50 days later, on a Sunday morning, we read, Acts 2, that the day of Pentecost had fully come. And they, Jesus' disciples, are all with one accord in one place. Likely a, a part of the temple complex known as Solomon's portico. And suddenly, as they're praying and waiting on the Lord, being faithful to God's instructions, there came a sound from heaven. As of a rushing mighty wind, it filled the house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire. One sat upon each of them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. As the Spirit gave them utterance, and there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men, every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, they gathered together, but were confused because they each heard them speak in his own language. An amazing event here. Now, it's not an accident that Acts chapter 2 opens, telling us what? That when the day of Pentecost had fully come. In the Greek, this phrase, had fully come would be better translated as when the day of Pentecost had finally come to represent everything it was always supposed to represent. It's a lot in the Greek. 
the idea is that Pentecost, as it had been celebrated year after year after year, had just been a rehearsal for this Pentecost. That it was always about this day, what would happen here and this moment. On the first Pentecost, God took a group of people he had just liberated from bondage, and he formed them into a nation using the law. But now, 1,500 years later, after freeing another group of people from the bondage of sin, Jesus now makes his disciples into a new nation through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. On Pentecost, both Israel and the church were born. It's riveting that in the procedures established in Leviticus 23, pertaining to Pentecost, we discover two interesting details that end up being central to the very DNA of us, of the church. Look back at verse 17. God instructs the people, you shall bring from your dwellings two wave loaves of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are first fruits to the Lord. Now because there's this reminder at the end of this section uh, dealing with Pentecost concerning the gleaning that was to occur in the fields. This is the wheat harvest. Leave the corners of your field for the poor. Take one pass. Let the poor come afterwards. Let them get provision. Let's take care of the poor. Let's take care of the stranger. It was traditional, even to this day, when the Jews gathered to celebrate Pentecost, that because of this very reference to gleaning in the field, that the Jews will read in the synagogues the entirety of the book of Ruth on Pentecost. It's one of the books that they turn to. And the reason is because it's a story of of Ruth going into the fields and gleaning and them being obedient to this instruction. It's a beautiful picture. That being said, what the Jews miss is that the story of Ruth, it really centers on a Gentile Moabite woman becoming the bride of a Hebrew kinsman redeemer named Boaz. (laughs) How cool to think that the church would be made up of not one loaf, but two. Two different loaves. That the church would be born Jew and Gentile. But how would the Gentiles come into the fold? Well, the church would become the bride of another Hebrew kinsman named Jesus. That's a pretty awesome picture. Profound implications. But do you also notice that the two loaves of bread, we find something bizarre about it, really unique. Over and over and over again, if you've been with us for any length of time in our travels through Leviticus, you recognize the importance of unleavened bread. Leaven is this, this picture of sin. And so the, the bread, with all these ceremonies, with all these protocols, was to not have leaven at all until here in Pentecost. These two loaves, the church, Jew and Gentile, they were to be baked with leaven. It's a total break from the protocols. See, what this acknowledges right from the beginning is that, yes, Jesus' church 
like Israel, would be born on Pentecost. It would be made up of two loaves, Jew and Gentile. But Jesus acknowledges right from the bat that though his bride, well, there would be sin. You know, we've been saved from sin positionally in heaven, but practically we still deal with it. (laughs) If you ever find a perfect church, don't go there because you'll mess it up. That's the truth. And so we find here this picture of of, of God birthing a new nation on Pentecost, but the acknowledgement that, yes, we would be a righteous bride. Yes, we would be Jesus, but we would also have sin. We wouldn't be perfect. There's there's an additional interconnection that should also be, be pointed out before we move forward. According to Exodus 32, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, With two tablets of stone, the law. You know the story. He found the people. Not sure what had happened to Moses. They had gotten Aaron to craft a golden calf. So Moses comes down with the the law. And he sees that they're in idolatry. Right from the bat. They're worshiping a golden calf. And this ticks that dude off. Oh, Moses had enough. And he throws down the tablets. And he tells the Levites, arm yourself. The law was given, and what resulted on the day Israel was birthed, 3,000 souls were killed. 3,000 souls perished. (laughs) You know, if you skip ahead, you read through Acts 2, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Peter gets up and teaches this incredible sermon because there are people confused. He shares with them about Jesus, the gospel, the resurrection. It's an amazing thing. But then in Acts 2, verse 41, following all these events, culminating, wrapping up the end of the day, we read that those, there were those who gladly received the words of Peter. And they were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. When the law was given and Israel was born, it resulted in the death of 3,000 human souls. But when the Holy Spirit was poured out and sent and the church was birthed, 3,000 souls were saved. On Passover, Jesus died. On unleavened bread, he was buried. On first fruits, he rose again. Fifty days later, on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit birthed the church. Not only is God telling Israel here in Leviticus 23 what was going to happen, He's telling them when. Powerful. But then something interesting happens after Pentecost. Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. The summer heat set in. Traveling would be difficult. There's these summer months. Regarding God's prophetic calendar, these four months... After Pentecost, the birth of the church, and before trumpets. Well, these four months would be relatively uneventful. Nothing would happen. Silence. Now, let's look at the first of the the fall festivals. The Feast of Trumpets, verse 23. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest. (laughs) Take a day. There should also be a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation, a party. You shall do no customary work on it. Take the day off. Make an offering by fire to the Lord. This section is kind of thin on details. 
Details that are provided more extensively in Numbers chapter 29. More about the various sacrifices that need to be made on this feast, etc. This being the first day, note, timing-wise, of the seventh month. Trumpets. Rosh Hashanah. It happens in our fall. But the feast itself marks the Jewish New Year. This is the beginning of their year. On the first day, New Year's, aside from taking a Sabbath rest and making sacrifices, there was to be, interestingly, quote, a memorial of blowing trumpets. Now, in Numbers 10, God specified in the creation of all the artifacts and the furniture and the things that they would use. In Numbers 10, God specified the creation, interestingly, of two silver trumpets. And these trumpets were, be to, were to be used for all kinds of occasions. And Numbers 10 expounds on it. The blast of trumpets, these two, would summon the people to gather at the tabernacle, the place of meeting. So if you heard the blast of these silver trumpets, you knew you were to stop what you were doing and go to the tabernacle. God had something to say. Trumpet blasts would also indicate that it was time, especially in the wilderness wanderings, that they needed to break down camp. It was time to move. So you hear the blast of trumpets, and there was these protocols with it, and you knew, all right, guys, we gotta, we got to pack everything up. It's time we're moving. Pillar of cloud, you know, cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. It's time to break camp. In extreme circumstances, these two trumpets would be used to sound the battle alarm. They were being attacked, or there was a threat. On this day, in relation to the fact that it's the new year, it would seem the blast of trumpets served two related functions. First, the trumpet was designed to awaken the people that their long summer hiatus was ending and to alert them that something important was beginning. And that's simple enough. We can understand that. In actuality, the, the Feast of Trumpets would last for about 10 days and culminate, it would end with the Day of Atonement. What's interesting about the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement was that these are two feasts that were not mandated. They were not mandated. The Jewish people were not required to congregate for these two feasts. Instead, the implication, the idea is that following the blast, the men of Israel would have basically 15 days to begin their pilgrimage to get to Jerusalem for the third feast that was required, the Feast of Tabernacles. So first, the trumpet was designed to kind of awaken the people. It's time to come back. Important things are happening. Secondly, the blast of the trumpet, we're told in our text, was to be a memorial for the people, or literally in the, the Hebrew, a call to remembrance. That's what the word memorial means. In Exodus 19, God commands Moses. So this is right before the law. They've been freed, they've been liberated, the law is about to be given. God calls Moses, he gives, them, he gives them instructions for the people, how they're to sanctify themselves, prepare themselves, how they're to gather, etc., Exodus 19, God says, and let me read you a section. He says, quote, that when the trumpet sounds long, you should come near the mountain. It shall come to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings, a thick cloud on the mountain. 
and the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke fire, because the Lord had descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered by voice. Now, understand, the sounding of the trumpets on this particular feast. Again, there's a practical application. Call to end the summer hiatus. You have 15 days. Let's start to gather for tabernacles. Things are happening. Practical application commemorating back in the past, this whole trumpet blast was to remind them of the original trumpet. Not blown by any man, but blown by God. The trumpet that God sounded when He first gathered His people at the base of Mount Sinai. The blasting of the trumpets served to remind the people who they were, people of God, and to alert them that something very important was about to commence. Now what's fascinating is that in the Bible, you're going you're gonna to find a lot of different trumpets. Trumpets are mentioned frequently in Scripture. And yet, the Bible only mentions God sounding a trumpet on two occasions. Angels blow trumpets a lot, especially in the book of Revelation. You'll see all kinds of trumpet blasts from the angels. But the trumpet of God, only two instances. The first is the one we just read there in Exodus. God blasted the trumpet from Sinai to gather Israel to himself to give the law. The second trumpet, we find, is mentioned in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And it's directly connected to an event we know prophetically as the rapture of the church. Let, let me read you what Paul writes. He says, verse 16 of 1 Thessalonians 4, For the Lord himself, this being Jesus, will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. What will happen? The dead in Christ will rise first. We who are alive and remain shall be caught up. In the Greek, this word caught up is rapturous. It's the, where we get the word rapture. We shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This isn't the second coming of Christ, because He doesn't come, we go. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, Paul says, comfort one another with these words. Let me quickly, because I know a lot of you are interested in these things, let me give you two additional references that also connect the second and final trumpet of God with this event known as the rapture. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 53, Paul says, I'll tell you a mystery. And again, it's a mystery. There's, it's mysterious. He says, we shall not all sleep. We shall not all die, Paul says. But we shall be changed, transformed, metamorphosized in a moment. There'll be a moment, Paul says, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. And in context, it would appear the last of God's trumpets. Not Don Jr. It's not a reference to Donald Trump. For the trump will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal immortality. In Revelation, in chapters 
2 and 3, Jesus has John transcribe seven letters that Jesus specifically sends to seven churches. Seven being that number of completion, totality. A lot of scholars saying this is Jesus' message to the church all throughout the ages, addressing the church today even. Chapters 2 and 3, the church. And then something interesting happens. In Revelation 4, beginning with verse 1, John says, I looked, behold, there was a door standing open in heaven. The first voice which I heard, which in context will be Jesus, was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. After what? After this period of the church. And immediately, instantly, I was in the Spirit. And behold, and he goes on to describe this heavenly scene. Now regarding this timeline of God's dealing with the Jewish people, which is what the festivals are about, following this long summer break, The Feast of Trumpets will find, I believe, its prophetic fulfillment in this event. The second blowing of the trumpet, the rapture of the church, and an unexpected instance, a time still yet to come. This second trumpet of God will sound and Christians across the globe will be gathered, caught up, raptured, to meet Jesus in the air, to meet the Lord. Now the Feast of Trumpets, yes, it involves Christians. But understand, both the trumpet and the events of this yet future day, well, there's, the, there's a relevant component for the Hebrew people. Again, this is about the Hebrews. The trumpets are designed to do something for the Hebrews. Trumpet blast, this future event, should remind the Jewish people that they were still God's. They were God's chosen people. They were still His. God still had a plan. The trumpet was to alert them. Something very important, significant, was taking place. In a sermon about the end times, known as the the, the Olivet Discourse, given by Jesus, Luke chapter 21, Jesus makes an interesting statement. He says that Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And it's an interesting statement. He kind of moves right along. The Apostle Paul will pick up this idea in Romans 11. Let me read you what Paul writes. He says, I I do not desire that you should be ignorant of this mystery. So it's a mystery, but don't be ignorant. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel. Why? Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so Israel will be saved after this. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Prophetically, this summer, between Pentecost and trumpets, this hiatus, where God's not doing much in Israel, He's doing a lot within the church, the church that's been born in Pentecost. This period of time is referred to theologically as the church age, the age of the church, the times of the Gentiles. God's dealings with Israel have been placed on pause until the fullness of the Gentiles is completed. God's work is finished. And then following the removal of the church at the Feast of Trumpets, God will turn his attention back to Israel, an Israel that had rejected Jesus as their Messiah so many years earlier. 
And within the prophetic timeline, 10 days following the blast of trumpets, now comes the Day of Atonement. The church is gone. The Hebrew people enter into a period referred to in Jeremiah 30 as a time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob's name was changed to Israel later on. This is a time of Israel's trouble. When Israel, the Hebrew people, along with the rest of the world, the rejecting world, will enter a period of time, I believe a seven-year period, known as Great Tribulation. And in the process of these things, Zechariah 12 tells us that within Israel there will be a national awakening. That they'll recognize Jesus as their Messiah. I'll read you what the prophet writes. He says, it shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that have come against Jerusalem. I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look to me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one who mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one that grieves for a firstborn. And in that day there shall be great mourning in Jerusalem. Let's dive right back into chapter 23, verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, And the tenth day of this seventh month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls. It should be a heavy day. An offering made by fire to the Lord, and, and you shall do no work on that day, for it's the day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that day shall be cut off from his people. So if you're not taking it seriously, you're missing the point, you should be excommunicated. Any person that does work on that day, that person should be destroyed from among his people. God's taking this seriously. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest. You shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the month at evening. From evening to evening, you shall celebrate your Sabbath. Now, regarding the Day of Atonement and what it commemorated, what it celebrated, well, I would refer you back to our study in Leviticus 16. The scapegoat, the high priest going behind the veil. That said, prophetically, this day finds its ultimate fulfillment when the Jewish people come to this point in time when they recognize the error of their way. The one that they had pierced was indeed the Messiah. They accept Jesus as the only effective atonement for sin. That Jesus has already tore down the veil. Tragically, and I'm going to cover a little bit of eschatology, it will take a deception by the Antichrist or the son of perdition It'll also take an abomination which causes desolation. An incredible period of persecution akin to the Holocaust for the Hebrew people during Jacob's trouble, this tribulational period, to open their eyes and see Jesus for who he is. Which leads us to the seventh and final festival on the Jewish calendar, the Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 33. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month. So, this is 15 days after trumpets, five days after the Day of Atonement. There shall be a Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. So it's going to last a week. Technically, will last for an eighth day. On the first day, there shall be a holy convocation. Don't do any work. Seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day, you shall make a holy convocation. And you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly. And you shall do no customary work on it. Verse 37 these are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering and a grain offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings, everything on its day. 
besides the Sabbaths of the Lord, besides your gifts, besides your vows, besides all your free will offerings that you give to the Lord. Also, on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, again, tabernacles was the great, the olive harvest, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day, there shall be a Sabbath rest. On the eighth day, a Sabbath rest. Bookends. And you shall take for yourself on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, leafy trees, willows of the brook. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Verse 41. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the children of Israel the feasts of the Lord. In order to commemorate their time in the wilderness, as well as to celebrate the fact that God had faithfully led them to a land flowing with milk and honey, had provided another harvest, during these seven days, the children of Israel would gather around the tabernacle, later the temple, and basically have a week-long family camp. Literally a camp. They would dwell in booths, or in the Hebrew, tabernacles. This is where we get the Feast of Tabernacles. And these booths were really nothing more than makeshift tents that would be made up of branches. We have examples of what kind of branches. They were crafted to really do two different things. And you can find examples of this today. The Jews still celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. But when they build these basic lean-tos, the roof, the roof was to serve two functions. One, it was to provide shade in the day. But it wasn't to be as built solid enough that you couldn't see through it at night. Shade in the day, but you should see the stars. That was the idea. Practically, since the Feast of Tabernacles is this final festival before the winter rains set in, the celebration not only intended to thank God for another year, but was also designed to petition God for rain in the winter so that they would have another successful crop in the spring. Broadly, and, and you'll find certain rabbis that write on this, the Feast of Tabernacles was designed to celebrate really the completion of everything. It was pretty broad. Fathers, in fact, were specifically instructed to use this week where they're camping out as a family to teach their kids the stories of God's provision. To be able to look up at night and see the stars and talk about creation. And God's call to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The salvation he provided in Joseph. How he raised up Moses to deliver them from Egyptian bondage. How he took care of them through the wilderness. Led them to a land of promise. You see, God wanted the affliction that they experienced on the Day of Atonement, to morph, by the time you get to tabernacles, into joy. God, you've been so good. And they recount their story, how they had gotten to that point. Now regarding the prophetic timeline, the Feast of Tabernacles has a clear and undeniable 
fulfillment. It's very difficult to debate at all in the reality that tabernacles is fulfilled ultimately in the second coming of Jesus. When he comes, he touches down on the Mount of Olives, he establishes a kingdom in Jerusalem where he'll rule and reign for a thousand years. How can we be confident of this? Well, of all of the feasts, the Feast of Tabernacles is the one we will continue to celebrate for a millennium. In Zechariah 14, verse 16, we're told that it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against, Israel, uh, against Jerusalem, so this is after Armageddon, after tribulation, after all of these things, after they've come to pass, whoever's left, we're told, shall go from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. There are scholars who make the argument that Jesus was actually born during the Feast of Tabernacles. The, the, the evidence for this, they'll point to John chapter 1, verse 14, when we read how the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt among us, it's literally tabernacled. So the, the thought is, well, Jesus was born on tabernacles. His birth is part of the fulfillment. Eh, maybe. It's, it's very difficult to say with any type of certainty one way or the other. And yet, by the time Jesus' earthly ministry had hit its stride, he would celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus. The completion of all things ultimately found in him. But by the time of Christ, there were two traditions that had developed. And we can say this with, with almost complete certainty. Incorporated with the festival. Remembering the cloud by day. The fire by night. During this feast, the priests, the very beginning of it, they would, they would go out to the walls of the temple where there were these enormous candelabras on the outer walls, and they would light them. There would be a fire to, to help the people remember that the pillar of fire, how God had descended in fire, you know, commemorating these things. It was an object lesson, something, something particular. First century historian Josephus actually says that the flames and the way that they bounced off of Herod's temple, off the marble, and off all the gold, it was blinding to the point that the temple could be seen miles and miles and miles and miles away. And it's interesting that during the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus going about his business, some of the religious leaders caught a woman in adultery and brought her and threw her at Jesus' feet. And you know the story where Jesus is like, yet ye without sin cast the first stone. But what immediately follows after Jesus says to her, go and sin no more, he turns with the backdrop of these enormous fires illuminating the temple. He says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. You remember the fire in the Old Testament? You remember the, the cloud that led? That was me. I led you then. I'll lead you now. I am the light of the world. How cool. Aside from this, there was also what was known as the water ceremony. That was designed to commemorate the water that God provided from the rock. In the wilderness. This also water ceremony spoke of a future fulfillment. 
where there would be a source of water provided there in Jerusalem. When the Messiah would touch down on the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives was split in two, and there would flow rivers of living water heading to the Mediterranean and down to the Dead Sea. You can read about that in Zechariah 14. But to commemorate these things, during tabernacles, during this seven-day festival, the priests, on every day, they would go down to the Pool of Siloam, which was located just outside of the southernmost gate of the city, in order to fill up these large, ornate, golden vessels full of water. Then the crowds, they would gather, they would be chanting and singing psalms, The shofar would be ringing loudly, and these golden vessels filled with water would be brought back up, paraded through the city, brought back up to the temple, and the priests would mix with the water some wine before pouring it on the altar. As this is happening, the people are cheering. Celebration. This happens every day during tabernacles. But on the eighth day of this feast, the same ceremony occurs But because it's the last day, the people have exited their booths, they're starting the preparations to go home, the water ceremony isn't looking back to what God had done. But it begins to look forward. God, please provide rain that we might have another successful crop. And with that in mind, as the ceremony happens, as it had all of the days previously, there is not a celebration, but a solemnness, a reverence. People are silent. Last great day of the feast, Roshana Rabbah, save now is what it means. The priests, as they had done, they draw water from the pool of Siloam, they carry it back into the temple, they mix it with the wine, they begin pouring it onto the altar. In contrast to the previous week, there's no blast of the, the shofars, there's no adulation from the crowd, the people are there on the temple mount in silence as this is happening, praying, God, provide us water. Life-giving rain. I want you to imagine being there, the Feast of Tabernacles. You've had this seven-day party. It's the eighth day at Solemn. You're there. There's the onlookers. You're praying, God, send us rain. They've taken the water. They've mixed it with the wine. They're pouring it out on the altar. Everyone is solemn. You can hear, her, you can hear a pin drop. And in the middle of all these things, as your thoughts are going back to God's faithfulness, when He provided your forefathers water from the rock, your eyes are closed, you're attentive, out of nowhere, the moment is interrupted with a screaming voice booming across the temple, instantly catching everyone that was off guard. You hear a voice crying out, a voice you recognize. You see, we're told that in that moment, Jesus stood up As they're pouring water on the altar, praying, God, provide water. Jesus stands up and he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Can you imagine the moment? Jesus is not only claiming to be the rock that provided water in the wilderness in the past, He's not only claiming that he would provide something presently, but he's saying that he would always provide and quench the thirst of any soul. The mixture of water and wine being poured onto the altar, it foreshadowed the work of Jesus 
on the altar of Calvary, when what from his side came flowing? A mixture of water and blood. And none of this was to happen on any other day but the eighth one. The eighth day. The eighth. A new week. A new beginning. A day of grace. In closing, Leviticus 23 presents seven feasts, complete, total. Seven feasts that all point to, yes, very cool, interesting things, but ultimately to Jesus. Jesus says, you search the scriptures, but you don't know that they all testify of me. They all point to me. They all reveal things about me. On Passover, he died for our sins. On unleavened bread, he was buried, removing our sins, casting them as far as the east is to the west. There's no more. And then he rose on first fruits, the first of our resurrection of the dead. Fifty days later on Pentecost, the spirit burst the church. That's followed by an uneventful hiatus that's interrupted by the blast of trumpets. On account of this great period of tribulation that would follow, the Jews finally come to accept Jesus as their atonement. And while their affliction would be immense, in the end, when it's all said and done, it would turn to joy when Jesus comes again on the Feast of Tabernacles. My friend, Leviticus 23 (laughs) is truly one of the most radical chapters in all of the Bible. For God not only explains to Israel what he's planning to do in their lives through Jesus, but he's also telling them when he's going to do it. The cool thing about Scripture, if I can bring this to a point of application, Jesus wants to work in your life. The Bible's clear. States it over and over. He's very clear what he wants to do in your life. In the same way that with these feasts, God articulates it to Israel through his word, through his spirit. He's clear, I have a work I want to do in you. Within Israel, there's this timeline. And you might say, well, okay, I recognize Jesus wants to do a work in me. But when? He says what he wants to do, but for Israel, he he tells them when he's going to do it. But what about for me? I know what he wants to do, but what about when he's going to do it? When is he going to do it? When? Friend, today. The author of Hebrews says that today is the day of salvation. There's nothing to wait for. Jesus wants to work in you. Will you let him? So, Father, Lord, we thank you for your word and what it says.